Acts 8, 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, and this is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it is our prayer now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would throw the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that all of the attention and all of the joy would be firmly found and rooted in him. We pray, Lord, that we would be amazed once more at his salvation, at his gospel, at his person and work there on the cross of Calvary. And that, Lord, you would restore to us, we pray, the joy of your salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hannah Whithall-Smith was a Quaker who lived in the 19th and 20th century. And she collected examples of what she called fanaticism. So people would ask to meet with her and they would relate to her instances or examples of things that they believed God was guiding them or telling them to do. And she compiled them all in a book that was published not long after her death. She wrote of one woman who would wake in the morning 
consecrate the day to the Lord and, quote, would then ask him whether she was to get up or not and would not stir till, quote, the voice told her to dress. As she put on each article, she asked the Lord whether she was to put it on. And very often the Lord would tell her to put on the right shoe and leave off the other. Sometimes she was to put on both stockings and no shoes. And sometimes both shoes and no stockings. It was the same with all the articles of dress. She recorded another story of an invalid who noticed that her hostess had left some money accidentally on the bedside table and then had, quote, an impression that the Lord wanted her to take that money in order to illustrate the truth of the text that says, all things are yours, which she did and was sadly thrown out as a thief. She recorded uh, another example of the, quote, quiet, refined lady, rather past middle-aged, who explained that, quote, there have been times when, in order to help my friends to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I have felt distinctively led of the Lord to have them get into bed with me and lie back to back without any nightgown between. Fanaticism was, I think, a good word to use. But there's another extreme, isn't there, when it comes to the Lord's guidance in our lives. One that removes the sense of God's leading and guiding almost altogether. Uh, A few years ago, Kevin DeYoung released a book called Just Do Something with the subtitle, quote, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or the subtitle continues, How to Make a Decision Without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. And and one of the criticisms of the book is that yes, on the one hand, it does a great job of smashing fanaticism to pieces. But on the other hand, it seems to swing too far the other way and encourages almost a merely human, cerebral, almost unspiritual approach to God's guidance in our lives and to decision-making in general. The point of our passage this morning is God guides Jesus' witnesses. And admittedly, there are some remarkable providences, aren't there, of God's guidance in Philip's life, who we've been hearing about over the last couple of weeks in Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip. And then most unusual of all, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And we might think to ourselves, well, when I was agonizing over that decision whether to apply to that university or whether to propose to that person, or whether to accept that person's proposal, or whether I should go into that career or not have a career, secularly speaking, at all, but rather be a foreign overseas missionary, I would have loved to have had an angel or the Spirit of the Lord tell me what to do. But friend, with or without such remarkable experiences, if you love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, God will accomplish all His holy will in your life and for your future. You just trust him. And he will be faithful to accomplish all that he has 
for you, regardless of how remarkable or ordinary his providences are in your life. Psalm 33, uh, 31, rather, verse 3 says, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. Psalm 73, verse 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. What a hope for us believers in Jesus Christ. One way or another, God will accomplish all his holy will for your life as he guides you. But perhaps you're here today and you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, our passage today makes it very clear that God guides Jesus' witnesses for the sake of those who are to receive salvation in Jesus Christ. And could that be why God has guided me to this place today and you to hear this message from God's word this Lord's Day morning? God guides Jesus' witnesses. And today we're going to see number one, to the lost. Number two, for the lost. And thirdly, and most strangely of all, from the lost as well. So number one, to the lost. Look with me, friend, at verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, if you've been with us for this series In Acts over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we've been encountering this consistent and glorious theme. Namely, that God is a global God with a heart for outsiders. You remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after Deacon Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, the church was scattered to all Judea and all Samaria, and they went about preaching the gospel as Jesus' witnesses, just as he promised. And then last week, Philip preached to a city in Samaria, probably Shechem. The Holy Spirit fell on them, proving to these half-Jews, these Samaritans, that yes, they too were included in God's kingdom. And here we have ourselves, friends, yet another outsider about to be transferred from one kingdom to another. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
you know, this Ethiopian eunuch, he was actually further separated from Judaism than the Samaritans were of last week's passage. He was a man of evidently great social standing and status. He had charge of the queen of Ethiopia's treasures. But as a Gentile and as an emasculated male, he wasn't allowed to become a full convert to Judaism. So even that he went to Jerusalem possibly every year to worship, he wouldn't have been allowed right inside of the temple of the Lord. And yet Philip was called away from Samaria and was guided to this man in particular. I want us to think, friends, this morning about what that says about God's priorities. Remember this, Philip had just seen revival in his ministry in Samaria. Souls had been saved Bodies had been healed. Demons had fled for their lives at the sound of Philip's preaching. And God guided Philip away from that, that glorious ministry, in order to go to the middle of nowhere, to Gaza, the last step before the desert, to meet one individual outsider. God is a global God. And God is the God of the individual. He's the God who has the hairs of your head numbered. He's the God who knows your first name and your middle name and your last name and knows your date of birth and knows where you live and sees you from afar and knows when you stand up and when you sit down. The God who would lead Philip away from the 99 in order to journey to meet the one lost sheep, making inside of insiders of outsiders is clearly way up there on heaven's priority list. But before we look at the moment when this outsider does indeed become an insider, I do want us to consider and reflect on this one point for a moment, and it is this. It is God who takes the initiative with the lost. It is God who takes the initiative with the lost. It was God who took the initiative with you. It was God who took the initiative with me. It was God who took the initiative with this outsider here in our passage. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Well, this man was about to inherit salvation because God had sent his angel to call Philip to meet him. And friend, you just call to mind every description of an unsaved person in the Bible and every single one of them will highlight, underline, and focus on their inability to save themselves. A lost person is someone unable to find the way. A slave is someone unable to liberate himself because he's under the power, under the authority of someone else. A blind man is unable to see. And if you're still not convinced, how about this one? Dead. And you, writes Paul, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's not only that God takes the initiative in the lost's life. It is that if God doesn't take the initiative, then the lost will never be found. A few months ago, I told you all the story 
as part of our series in Genesis on a Sunday night of the man who once was a drug addict but is now a pastor. And he says this, you remember he said, I grew up in a, in a nominally Catholic home, rebelled against all I understood about Catholicism. And at an early age, I immersed myself in the drug culture. I can still remember the first evening I smoked marijuana and I pursued the world of drugs as passionately as I could to my shame. I found myself to every possible drug-induced experience of pleasure I could. I took LSD like it was vitamin C. I was happy. There was no crisis taking place in my life. I was not convicted of my sin. And it just so happened that one of my older friends who had invited me into the drug culture had relocated. And somehow, some way, he wandered into a church where he heard the gospel and he experienced the miracle of regeneration. He turned from his sin, he trusted in the Savior, and within two weeks of his conversion, he had this intent, I must return to the Washington, D.C. area and share the gospel with my friends. He asked to meet with me one evening, and as I smoked marijuana at some point in between tokes, as he told me all he knew of the gospel, God summoned me. In a moment, I experienced effectual call. God acted upon me prior to my acting upon God. And he said, if you had come to me and said, do you know, your repentance and faith initiated this experience, I would have said, how can I put this politely? You are a moron. I didn't initiate this. God acted upon me prior to my acting upon God. And friend, perhaps God is acting upon you today. Perhaps in guiding me to speak to you, God is taking the initiative in your life, in calling you to belong to him. Think about this, friends. This Ethiopian eunuch, he'd gone up to Jerusalem every year probably to worship, and yet he was still an outsider. And perhaps you come to this church every Lord's Day, and you're still an outsider. But just as this outsider became an insider on this one particular day, so perhaps you too, friend, may today go from being an outsider to an insider by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you think it's for no reason at all that you had the desire to be here today when none of your family did? Do you think it's for no reason that you have this interest in God's word when none of your colleagues do? Why you and not them? Could it be that God has his hand on your soul and is pulling you toward himself? God guides Jesus, witnesses number one to the lost and number two for the lost. Look at verse 30 again. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip about whom I ask you. Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road they came to some water. And the eunuch said see Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. Why had God guided Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch? For his salvation. I wonder can you see him this morning friend in your mind's eye. As he rides along in this chariot outwardly perhaps he looks like he has it all maybe he was dressed in royal robes and yet inwardly he is destitute of what he needed the most I wonder can you hear him in your mind's eye reading out loud the prophecy of Isaiah perhaps the clearest prophecy of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ but with scales all over his eyes and then Philip climbs into the chariot and with the scroll of Isaiah still opened on the eunuch's lap, he says, sir, the prophet wasn't writing about himself. No, he was writing about someone else. And I've come to share with you his name today. He wrote, sir, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look, sir, do you see the place in the scroll where Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him? Jesus looked like an ordinary man. But there was nothing about his life that was ordinary at all. He was sinless. He was blameless. He was God in the flesh. And yet, despite the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good and favoring men and women, do you see how it's written here? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He'd done nothing wrong. No injustice was found in his mouth. But shockingly, sir, He was wounded for our transgressions. And he, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Christ, was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So do you understand that sin has separated us from God? God cannot look on sin. And so there is this chasm that exists between us and him this gulf that lays between us and sir all the riches of Ethiopia all of Candace's treasure could never repay the debt that we owe God we we should be wounded for our transgressions we deserve to be crushed for our iniquities but because of his amazing love for us 
he was the one who volunteered to give himself to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. You see, all we like sheep have gone astray. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that simply by faith in the one who like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by faith in the one who endured all of this. He would account many to be made righteous. And so God has guided me to meet you today. To tell you that if you will believe on this Jesus of Nazareth, your sin can be atoned for and your guilt can be taken away by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Sir, no penance to complete, no works to perform, simply by faith. In the one whom Isaiah wrote about 700 years before he was born of a virgin. God guided Philip to guide this man, man's mind to understanding and his soul toward salvation. And friend, what Philip said to the Ethiopian, I now say to you, if you will believe on the one who was pierced for our transgressions and who was crushed for our iniquities, then you too will be saved. Just like the Ethiopian was, just like I was, just like many gathered here today were, so now you today. See, perhaps when you heard me say earlier in our service, God takes the initiative with the lost, you thought to yourself, okay, well, when God wants me, he knows where to find me. But you see, here, friends, how salvation in the heart comes through understanding in the mind. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. I remember years ago helping out on a course just like Christianity Explored, and there was a young woman on that course who'd been raised in the church, and all of the knowledge was there in her brain. And one night she just said with some distress in her voice, I believe all of it's true, but I just haven't believed on it yet for myself. And before I noticed the words flying out of my mouth, I said to her, if you believe that the gospel is true, you must go home tonight and you must repent and you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And to the amazement of the church who had been praying for her, for some 25 years, that is just what she did. And she called her grandma at about three in the morning and woke her up to say, I've believed. I'm a new creation in Christ. At last, I've received it. And you might be just like her today, friend. All of the knowledge is there. But it hasn't gone yet from here to here. Friend, is there more of the gospel for you to know? Of course there is. The gospel is as deep, is deep enough for elephants to swim in and shallow enough for children to paddle in, as one theologian put it many years ago. But the call on your life 
is for you to believe the little that you do know and the little that you do understand. Behold, now is the acceptable time. And behold, today is the day of salvation. And behold, tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is God's day, as one preacher put it. You must believe what you know now and then nail your colors to the mast through Christian baptism. But where is the message here for unbelievers is believe the gospel as it was for this Ethiopian. The message for us believers is share the gospel. That's why we were saved. Wasn't it not to just keep the message to ourselves, but to extend what we ourselves had received. Whether we hear an angelic messenger, or whether the Holy Spirit speaks in an audible voice to us. Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Whether preaching to a city in the open air like Philip did in Shechem of Samaria. Whether sat side by side on a chariot like Philip did. The call in our lives is to open our mouths and tell others the good news of Jesus. And the truth is, we'll only do that when the good news about Jesus actually feels like good news. Isn't that true? The more that you're thrilled with something, the more likely you are to pass it on with others. Men, you only want to bring your wife to that restaurant if you know for certain that the food there is great. And we'll only share the gospel if it actually feels like gospel to us how happy in the gospel is your soul today well god guides jesus witnesses number one to the lost number two for the lost but thirdly and strangely enough from the lost look again at verse 39 it says and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the lord carried philip away and the eunuch saw him no more And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. When verse 39 says, The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuchs saw him no more, does that mean that Philip was somehow transported? teleported away supernaturally? Is that what it means? It definitely sounds like that. Verse 40, Philip found himself at Azotus. Friends, how the Holy Spirit did this, we don't yet know. But why the Holy Spirit did this, we certainly can know. Why did the Holy Spirit transport Philip like this in this supernatural way for Philip to reach others? With the same gospel. Verse 40 again. As he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns. Until he came to Caesarea. That's why the spirit took him away. And interestingly. We're going to meet Philip again. In 20 years from this moment. No not from this 
day in 2022, but 20 years uh, later from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 21, we meet him again in Acts chapter 21, 20 years on where Philip has four daughters whom we're told prophesied and proclaimed the word. So whether to the crowds in Samaria, whether to an individual in Gaza, whether to a household in Caesarea, Philip was an evangelism machine. Which means this, a believer's work is never done. A believer's work is never done. We never retire from the Great Commission. Philip was an evangelism machine, whether in Acts chapter 8, whether in Acts chapter 21 in Caesarea, whether now or in 20 years, there is kingdom work for us to do. Friend, perhaps you're a brand new believer today, there's work for you to do. Perhaps you've been a Christian for longer than I've been alive. You've been a believer for longer than I've been alive. There is work for you to do. Hell is infinitely horrible. The gospel is infinitely glorious. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. There is therefore work for you to do. So friend, can I give this Closing word of application to us believers, fight tooth and nail with the temptation to loiter on your spiritual journey. As David Brainard said, don't be like those believers who would leave church on a Sunday and say, well, that was a good message today, and then live like they never even heard it. Instead, steward the time that you have for maximum gospel impact. We all have different capacities, don't we, for evangelism. Some of us work full-time, others of us don't. Some of us are parents, some of us aren't. But friends, we are all called to redeem the time because the time, the days are evil. We are all called to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain. And so if you have children, take them through the Bible. Read to them a great gospel book like Little Pilgrim's Progress or Mansoul or whatever it is that's going to show them the glory of Christ. And if you have a full-time career, why not initiate a, a lunch meeting where you can sit down with someone and gently but clearly share the gospel with them, fully believing that God has guided you to that place of work in particular, and that colleague in particular to come and work with you. God guides Jesus' witnesses. That was true in Acts, and that is true today. That was true whether in Jerusalem or Samaria or Gaza or Caesarea. And that is true in Hoylake or Mells or West Kirby or Liverpool. God guides Jesus' witnesses. Number one, to the lost. Number two, for the lost. And thirdly, even from the lost in order for us to reach others with this good news message of Christ. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing? I think